We've been going through a series in 1 Timothy where a lot of 1 Timothy was written for the church to explain to the church how to be organized, how to set itself up, what are the different offices, and how should they all relate. So last week, Neil preached on the first part of 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we talked about what we believe about the office of elder. And today, uh, we're going to be in the second part of chapter 3, and we're going to be talking about the office of deacon. So when I was in college, I I had this degree. It was was probably equivalent to like underwater basket weaving type of degree, but my degree was in Christian studies. All right, so I'm telling you, it was a real degree, I promise. Uh, But whenever you'd go to class and you'd talk about the church and how the church is set up, oftentimes you would talk about the role of deacons. Uh, And it was almost like there was like trepidation when the subject was brought up and the professors would get really serious and they had all begin to share stories like, like war stories of, of their time with deacons. And they'd be like, man, I had this deacon once. And then when you get pastors together, oftentimes that would be the tone of the conversation when you talk about the role and office of deacons. It was almost like the role and office of a deacon was a hurdle to overcome or maybe a faction to defeat. But man, when we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we look at the Bible about what the Bible says about the role and office of deacon, it is this beautiful, God-glorifying thing that, that God has given to bless his church. So what we want to do today is we want to approach this text and approach the Bible and we want to ask three different questions. We want to ask the question, what is a deacon? We want to go through the qualifications of a deacon. And then at the very end, we talk about what a deacon receives. So what is a deacon? What are the qualifications of a deacon? And then what does a deacon receive? Whenever we ask that first question of what is a deacon, one of the places that people oftentimes go to is not 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, but where they go to is Acts chapter 6. Because in Acts chapter 6, we see the first deacons being elected in this story in Acts chapter 6. And what's happening in Acts chapter 6 verse 1, it says that a, 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 a argument broke out within the early church. And this was the argument. This was the problem. This was, this was, um, this was the, the, the issue. Is that within the church, there were thousands of people within the church, but you also had many widows. You had widows who kind of had this Greek background, and you had widows that had the Jewish background. And the widows with the Jewish background were being taken care of. They distributed food to them daily. They were loved and they were cared for. But it almost appeared to the church that these widows with a Greek background were being overlooked. And so what you had was a potential faction, a complaint that arose in this early church. And so the elders got together, they saw this problem, they acknowledged the problem, and they said, listen, this is a huge problem, but God has called us to the ministry of the word and to the ministry of the prayer. And so they said, let's select seven men from among our body, and these men will approach this issue and make sure that these widows are taken care of. And so they selected from themselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, And they then attacked this problem. And they made sure that all the widows in the community were taken care of. When we look at Acts chapter 6, 
verses 1 through 7, what we find is deacons uh, of doing their role, of doing their thing. And you see three different things that they do. This is the first thing that deacons do. If you're saying, what is a deacon? What does a deacon do? First and foremost, a deacon protects and promotes church unity. A deacon protects and promotes church unity. This is seen when there in verse 1, there was a complaint that was raised in the early church. Widows were being overlooked. People were getting upset. Maybe the issue of race came up. Well, we're Greek descent and you're Jewish descent. And it was an issue within the church. And so they elected deacons and rose up deacons to make sure that, that things were taken care of. If you are a deacon in our church, if you will one day be a deacon in our church, you have to know and realize that one of your first roles as a deacon is to protect and to promote church unity. The second thing we see in Acts chapter 6 about what the deacons are doing is they are spotting and they are taking care and meeting tangible needs, real needs within the church. In this particular case in Acts chapter 6, People weren't getting their distribution of food. Widows were going hungry. This is the problem. We don't want widows to go hungry. So they brought deacons in and they met these tangible needs. They selected seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit, to take care of this duty. When we look at our church and how we handle deacons, it's a bit different from the way other churches do. I think what a lot of churches do is they just find uh, deacon qualified people and they put them in one deacon board and it's almost like this giant committee. The way that we do it that's different, rather than just having a big committee of people uh, waiting for work to do, what we do is we stand back, we let the church operate and whenever a church is going and operating, issues always kind of rise to the surface. And whenever we see an issue or a tangible need within the body of Christ, it's at that point in time that we say, we need a deacon to take care of this role. So early on, we were planting the church. The church was getting ready to launch. It's like, all right, well, how are we going to do music? It's a tangible need. We don't have anyone to lead worship. And so Jason came along as a deacon, as a director. We use those words interchangeably, deacon and director. And he's like, I will take care of this tangible need. Whenever we planted the church, there was a need of like, man, how are we going to take care of our children? How are we going to run a nursery? And so Lindsay stood up and she is our director of our children's church. We had these tangible needs and people are lifted up to fill those roles. Deacons serve the church by taking care of tangible needs. So what are the other roles that we have here? What are the other deacons that we have? We mentioned Jason and Lindsay. We also have this need for hospitality so that when you drive up, there's someone at the fence line welcoming you in and there's making sure that there's communion ready or making sure like we have a, we have a baptism today after the service, so stick around for that. Uh, we have our deacons right now filling up that baptistry to make sure that there's water there. Um, So they take care of these tangible needs. So we have worship with Jason Chick, Children's Church with Lindsay Watson, Hospitality with Esmer Alvarado, the Incident Response Team with Matt Ives, Uh, the Grounds is with Russell Porterfield, the Building is with Jim Markham, Hospitality for those 
who are needing mercy or who are not at our church because they're deployed or for whatever reason is with Shelly Walker. We have these people in our church taking care of tangible needs within the body of Christ. So deacons, what do they do? They protect and promote church unity. They spot and they meet tangible needs. And then they also come alongside the ministry of the elders. Listen to what the elders said in Acts chapter 6. It is not right that we neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. Elders in the church are called to teach, to preach, to pray, and to serve in, that, in those contexts. Whereas the deacons are called to serve the more tangible needs. They are model servants set up to serve the body of Christ. And the effect of this is tremendous. When elders and deacons in the church are all working together in tandem, it produces these beautiful results. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, this is what it says. What was the result of bringing these men up to serve as deacons? In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So when you have elders functioning as elders, when you have deacons functioning as deacons, when you have the church being the church and they're all fulfilling the duty and the calling that God has brought them to do, what happens is that the gospel message spreads and that people come to know Jesus. The role of the deacon is so needed within the body of Christ today. And it's a role that's to be honored and respected Someone asked last week, uh, what is the process? So if someone's going to become a, an elder in our church or someone's going to become a deacon in the church, like what's the process of how does somebody get to that role, get to that office? And, and the process is largely the same, whether you're a deacon or an elder, it, it's the same process. And the first part of that process is being nominated. And nomination to those roles comes from two different areas. It might come... Uh, from the elder board, the elders say, man, we have this need, we have this problem, and we see a person who is godly who can fill that need. So the nomination can come from the elder board, or a nomination to the role of deacon or elder can come from the church body itself. So on March 5th, we have a covenant members meeting where the members will come together. The last one we had in December, one of the things that we did is we said, who do you see in our membership and in our midst that meet the qualifications of these offices. And the church then submitted names for people to be considered. So it begins with this idea of nomination. Acts chapter 6, they said, select from your own body seven men. So they're nominated for that role. Then after that, there's a time of testing. Whether you're an elder or a deacon, uh, it talks about this need for testing. So we do that through a different variety of ways. One of the things that we do is we send out this horrible Google form questionnaire. And it's all these questions about your character and references of people that we can call to confirm your story. And then we do this thing where it's another horrible questionnaire, but it's all about doctrine and what you believe about different doctrines. Because we want to make sure that these men and these people filling the positions of deacons and men and women that they have both character and good theological standing. 
After that, we get those in, and then the elders begin to have interviews. We interview the potential candidate. We interview their spouse. If they're married, we give them books and articles to read to make sure they understand the role. And then when we get to a point where we're like, all right, we think this is a good fit, and we think God is calling this person to this role at this time, we submit it to the church as an elder board. And the church then has two weeks to look at the person being held up for an office, and they have two weeks to say, man, this is, this is a good fit, and we agree with you. But if someone has a concern, that's two weeks for them to pray about it and to express concern for the elder, saying, you might not know everything there is to know about this person. It's important for the people holding the offices of elder and deacon to be godly people. Why? Because they're not only operating in our church, but we live in a world where the world is also looking at what we're doing. And if someone is holding the role of an elder or a deacon within a church, and they are not respected even in the outside world, that's a shame to the church of Christ itself as well. So after those two weeks uh, of time of confirmation, the church then comes together and votes on those offices. And that's kind of the process that we follow, whether it be for elders or for deacons. It's the same process with a little bit of different uh, teaching and training involved in there. I don't know if you notice this, but like right now our church is growing. <laughs> Beforehand, it's like, all right, we're out of communion and we're out of seats. Like, where are we going to go? There's still some space in the nine o'clock service if you want to come to the nine o'clock service. Uh, in fact, we're working right now at getting a children's church uh, for elementary class at the nine o'clock service as well, if that's what's holding you back. Hopefully within a, within a month, we'll have that up and going as well. Um, but as our church grows, we are going to need more people stepping into that role of deacon. As our church grows, man, we live in a transient community where people are moving in and moving out all the time. We're going to need more deacons to stand up and to fill those roles that are vacated. It's so important for us to understand this role biblically because it is for the health and the success of the church and for the health and the success of the mission of God. That's what a deacon is. But what does a deacon need to do to be qualified? And so just like with elders, he gives qualifications. With deacon, he also gives us qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm not going to go into this too much because last week, Neil did a great job of going through these qualifications line by line. And the qualifications for an elder and deacon are very similar. But we will go through them some in case you weren't there for that sermon if you want more, get online and go back and listen to Neil's sermon. It was a great one. As we go through these qualifications of a, of a deacon, one of the things I want you to realize is that the qualifications for a deacon are character-centric. It doesn't say to be an elder, you need to have a good handyman skills so you can fix things. It doesn't say to be a deacon, you need to be able to make a mean spreadsheet because that's going to be necessary for a church. But whenever it lists out the qualifications of deacons, what it does is it focuses in on the character. So notice the character qualifications. The second thing I want you to notice is every qualification that Paul gives for the office of deacon is what he calls every Christian to fulfill as well. 
So what does that tell us? If every Christian is commanded to live this way, what it's saying is that deacons are people who not only know the truth, but they are living it out as well. Deacons are mature people within the church. So let's look at the, the qualifications real quick. First qualification we have is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Deacons likewise should be worthy of respect. Just like I said, they are worthy of respect. And so whenever you have a deacon in a church and they're being nominated, it shouldn't come to a surprise for people of like, oh my gosh, they want that person to be a deacon? Do they know them? Have they investigated their lives? That should never be the response. But when someone is lifted up as a deacon, the response should be like, oh yeah, I can see that. That person is godly. That person is mature. That person honors Christ with their speech and their life. They should be acknowledged already within the church that they are godly people. In Acts chapter 6, whenever they elected those seven men to be deacons, it said they were of good reputation, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. So when someone is risen up to that position, they are already living out the faith well. It is not a place, it is not a role to step into if you're not already qualified for it. They should be a mature believer who knows and loves and have proven themselves to be faithful and obedient. They already have the respect of the church. They are worthy of respect in verse 8. Verse 8 also talks about three other qualifications. They're not hypocritical. They're not drinking a lot of wine. And they're not greedy for money. For these three qualifications, I'm going to put them underneath a big title that they should be self controlled. They should be able to control their tongue, control addictions, and control their, uh, their money is essentially the three things that it's calling them to do. They are not to be hypocritical. This literally is translated double tongue. They should not say things behind people's back that they would not say to their face, and they shouldn't say something to somebody to somebody's face that they wouldn't say behind their back. What I'm saying is this, they don't use flattery, and at the same time, they don't gossip. That is how the deacon is supposed to control their tongue. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Ephesians. And remember, Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. So remember, what Paul is calling every believer to do in Ephesus, it is what the deacons in Ephesus are doing. He says this in Ephesians 4.29. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, for you are sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. All the things that Paul said there in Ephesians 4, 29 through 32 have to do with how we speak to one another. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I in my speech and how I communicate and how I speak to people and how I speak of people, am I obedient to Christ in this area? Another area we're supposed to be self-controlled in is that of not drinking a lot of wine. 
And I think what we could say here is that a deacon is one who is not controlled by addiction. It might be alcohol, it might be something else, but he is not controlled by addiction. Ephesians chapter 5 to this church in Ephesus where Timothy is, this is what the apostle writes to the entire church. And do not get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Whenever we are controlled by addictions, whether it be alcohol, whether it be video games or streaming shows on Disney Plus, Mandalorian's coming out like March 1st, right? Whatever it may be, whatever addiction you might have, to be a deacon, to be mature in the faith means you are not controlled by addictions, but rather you are filled with the Spirit of Christ. A deacon is one who is filled with the Spirit of Christ and has control over his body and has control over his passions. Do you have control, brother or sister in Christ, over your passions, over your desires, or are you controlled by your addictions? We are also told in verse 8 that they should not be greedy for money. They should have self-control in regards to how they handle their finances. Jesus says that no one can serve two masters because they will love one and despise the other. No one can serve both God and money. That whenever we have a love of money, what we have is a controlling factor in our lives that's going to direct how we spend our time, how we engage with people, how we handle a generosity or whether we're stingy with what we have. Where a deacon is a mature believer and that they are not controlled by a love of money. It's interesting that when we look at the book of First Timothy, especially when we get towards the end in chapter 6, man, we're probably going to have two or three sermons on how we handle our money and how we approach our money. That Christ, when he rules our heart and he rules our mind, it also has an effect on how we handle our finances. 1 Timothy chapter 3 goes through these qualifications. In verse 9, he said there's a qualification that we hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What does this mean? It means that they know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but not only do they know the truth of the gospel of Christ, but they are actively living it out in their lives. There's a difference there, isn't it? Sometimes we know the good that we ought to do, but we don't do it. A deacon is one who knows the good that they ought to do it. And though sometimes they might fail, but for the most part, they they are living out the truth of the gospel in their lives. They are mature believers. And then in verse 12, we have another qualification for deacons, that they are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. This is similar to that in the elder qualification in that to be a leader in the church means that you are leading your family well. If you are a deacon and you are married, how do you engage your spouse? Is your spouse closer to Jesus because of you or are they closer to Jesus in spite of you? We are called to be people when we are married that we lay down our lives for one another. Husbands, we are told to lay down our lives for our wives the way that Christ laid down his life for the church. 
not with our eyes on our own interests and our own needs, but with our eyes on that of our wives. If you have children, how are you engaging your children? Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Timothy's church, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. He says, Fathers, don't stir up your children in anger, but bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. That whenever we have a deacon, we look at their kids. Are they leading their kids well? Not that their kids never rebel. That would disqualify us all, right? But are they leading their kids well or are they stirring them up towards anger? Are they pushing them and leading them and drawing them towards Christ? Saying, hear the beauty and the benefits of Jesus. That's what deacons are doing This is what gives them the respect within the church. Now, one of the things that we also need to do here, as we're talking about the qualifications of deacons, we also have to ask the question, can women be deacons? That was one of the things that we talked about last week when it came to elders in the church. We don't believe that women serve in the role of pastor and elder based off of 1 Timothy. But does 1 Timothy, does it open up the role of deacon for women? Our official stance in our church is that women can be deacons. They can be directors. We use those words interchangeably here. You might say, well, where do we see that in the text? And this is the thing. It gets difficult. We have to realize that translating the Bible is not an easy task. And oftentimes you have to make decisions on what does it mean, uh, what do these words mean, and how do we put it into English. So this is what I mean by that. In verse 11, it says, Wives, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. When you read it in that way, it almost looks like not only does a deacon have a qualification, but also his wife has qualifications as well. But that word, that Greek word translated wife, is the exact same word translated as woman. So in the Greek, it's not like you have separate words for wife and woman. It's just the same word. And what translators have to do when they come to the Greek text is they have to say, how do we translate this word? Are we going to translate it wife or woman? They look at context and they try to figure it out. Let me just say, man, our English translations are amazing. They are trustworthy and reliable. God has, God has blessed us with great translations. But we can even look at some of our favorite translations and see how they translate this word differently. Anyone here, I, I cut my, uh, I, I, well, I have two favorite versions. My two favorite versions of the Bible are the one that we use here for the church. It's the Christian Standard Version. And, and the one that I use for a lot of my personal studies called the English Standard Version. Both of those translations, when you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, it translates that Greek word as wife. But did anyone here cut their teeth on the NIV? I know like all my scripture memories like NIV or King James, right? So you have, you, have, uh, you have the NIV, and then another Bible I used a lot throughout my life was the New American Standard. Both of those versions, when you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, they translate that word as woman. And when you translate the word as woman as opposed to wife, it does give this appearance that it's like, okay, 
here are some qualifications for all deacons, here are some qualifications for male deacons, here are some qualifications for female deacons. And so it's a very difficult thing to translate. One of the things that I do is I say, all right, I'm going to look at the whole context, but the other thing I want to do is I want to go to other parts of the Bible because the Bible or Scripture always interprets Scripture. And I want to ask the question, are there women deacons in the Bible? And when I look at that and I ask that question, I have to say, well, I think there is. And once again, the Greek gets difficult because the word deacon is a transliteration. You know what a transliteration is? It doesn't, it's where you have a word in, in, in one language and you just use it in another language rather than translating it. You just make it, you kind of adopt it into your own vocabulary. So this is what I mean. In the Bible, the word amen is a transliteration. It's a Greek word that rather than translate it, they just put the Greek word in our English Bibles. And the word amen means truly, truly, truly. Or it might mean like agreed. So like in Jesus' name, man, we agree, right? That's what the word amen means. The word baptism is not an English word. The word baptism is a transliteration of a Greek word. So uh, the word baptismo in the Greek literally means to dip or immerse. But we just took that Greek word and moved it over to English, and it's just the word that we use for to dip or immerse. I'm glad we have that because it sounds a lot better than like, hey, guys, hang around after the service today. We're going to have a dipping uh, <laughs> I kind of like the word baptism better. But, but that, that's the way that sometimes the Bible is translated. You have transliterations. So what does the word deacon mean? The, de- the word deacon literally means servant. A deacon is a servant. And when we look at the Bible, we see this word being used in many different ways. When Jesus' mom was getting Jesus to turn water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana, it says that she turned to the servants of the wedding, or she turned to the deacons at the wedding. Uh, so you can see it used in that way there in the New Testament. Uh, translators are always trying to decide, are we going to use the word deacon, or are we going to use the word servant? And how they typically do this is if they think it's the official office or role of a deacon, they'll use the word deacon rather than servant. And if it's like a, a someone who's just helping out, coming alongside, like a good volunteer, they'll use the word servant. So do we see women deacons in the Bible? I think we do in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Word of God says in Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant or who is a deacon of the church of Centuria. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Once again, it depends on the version you read of how they translate the word deacon. Some translations like the New American Standard, the NIV, they'll translate that word as deacon CSB, ESV, they translate it as servant because there's a disagreement there. But when I read that text, I read 1 Timothy, man, the, the thing that I come to see is it, it looks like to me that God is restricting the role of elder to men, but he is opening the role of deacon 
to men or women. And this is why this was so hard for me to get here. Because when I was growing up in the Baptist world, I really feel like there was a disconnect on how we did elders and deacons. In fact, in the Baptist world where I grew up, there essentially were no elders. You had a single pastor and you had a board of deacons. And it's almost like they were pitted against each other as foils where the pastor would try and come in and change things and the deacons would slap them down and say no. And you begin to get all these jokes that I was talking about or all these accusations I was talking about at the beginning of the service where they say, well, the pastor says things, but the the deacons run things, right? And so within the Baptist world, at least, in our area, the deacons were held up as elders. They were the ones who who directed the church, who ruled the church as elders. I think what it is, I think it was almost like a misuse of the name. They should have been called elders if that was their role. Because when we look at the role in 1 Timothy, elders are model, I mean, elders are, are servant leaders, but what we have with deacons is they are model servants. They aren't shepherding and teaching the same way that the elders are, They are serving the body of Christ, which every believer is called to do. That's why at our church what we do have this role of deacons opened up to both men and women. Finally, what does a deacon receive? We'll we'll, we'll hit this one pretty quick because I think think our garage for our children's church meets is pretty full today. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. What does a deacon receive for their ministry. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There are two things that they receive. The first thing they receive is good standing within the church. That as our deacons serve well, as they give of themselves on the sake of the body of Christ, that the respect we have for these men and women ought to grow. And we ought to have a spirit of gratitude towards them. I can tell you that our church would not make it without the men and women who serve in these roles. God has blessed our church with them. And I'm thankful for their godliness and for their example and for their service. They receive good standing. Make sure when you meet them and you engage them that you look at their life and how they live their life, but also that you thank them for the work that they're doing. The second thing that they get is a boldness or a confidence in Christ that as they give of themselves, as they serve, they are able to more see God at work and to see God's faithfulness at work And that boosts their confidence and it strengthens their faith as they live in this life. We all should aspire to live up to the qualifications of a servant. We all should aspire to live up to the qualifications of a deacon. I'm reminded of what Christ said about serving Whenever he was walking down the road with his disciples and he caught them in an argument. It's like, it's, like, it's like your parents showed up, caught you in the middle of something you shouldn't be doing. They were arguing. Jesus shows up and he says, well, what are you arguing about? 
And it's like they have to hang their head and they're like, well, we are arguing about which of one of us is the greatest. <coughs> right? It's kind of, kind of embarrassing. Jesus just had like the Mount of Transfiguration in his glory with Moses and Elijah and they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And he calls them over to himself and he says this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. Do y'all recognize this any at all? Tyrants and lording power over other people. But this is what Jesus says to the church. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. Did you catch that? How are we supposed to act within the body of Christ? Not grasping for power, not lording power, but rather the greatest people in the church should be the greatest servants. And Jesus continued, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters in Christ, members of Christ Community Church, we are called to be servants. That's who we are. That's what we do. When we engage with other people, we are not walking in saying, what can I get or what will make me happy? But that when we engage with other people and we step into a room, our eyes are open and we are asking the question, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I be a blessing to someone else who's here? That might be through welcoming. That might be through asking questions about someone else's life. That might be through praying a prayer. It very well might be through paying a bill where someone else is having a hard time doing it or helping out in some other tangible need. But that's who we are as a church. We are people who serve because our Lord Jesus Christ was a servant for many. And he gave his life as a ransom. Let us, as a church, be like Jesus. Let's stand and pray.